Father, we thank you that uh, you've made us this promise that uh, Jesus, the snake crusher, would come. We recognize that we struggle and have fallen and fight and fear and hurt and uh, need your help. And we need a deliverer. And so we thank you for this Christmas season that reminds us of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome here. My name is Jeremy. If you're joining us just now, we're glad you're here to worship with us. We are in our second sermon of our Christmas series. And this one is entitled The First Family. The first sermon you saw somewhat recapped there in the video called The First Promise. Now that video is taken from Kevin DeYoung in his children's story. Um, the, let's see here, what's it called? The Greatest Story, I believe that's what it's called. Kevin DeYoung's Greatest Story. It's a beautiful book, both in its storytelling and its illustrations. You saw some of them up there. Highly recommend it, even if you're not a child. It's an excellent recap of the cosmic story of the gospel. And that's kind of the way we're going with this season's uh, Christmas sermon series, is we're giving the big picture overview. We're not just doing Luke 2 that... Charlie Brown Christmas text that you're probably most familiar with, but we're looking at the big picture from start to finish. And so today we're continuing in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. It's called Genesis or Beginnings, and it's really the foundation for everything that happens after that. There's some crazy, crazy stories in this book. There are ones you've probably heard about, even if you're um, first time ever in a church building, like for example, Noah and the flood or stuff like that. All of these sort of big foundational things start in Genesis and that's chapter one, if you will, of the Bible. And then the rest of the Bible sort of works out that story as it develops God's theme of redemption and salvation in his glory. And so today as we get back into that series, I want to start with a little slideshow that I adapted from a group called Rose Publishing. Uh, this is a picture of what they look like if you uh, go to their website or something like that. Um, so many of the slides in there are my adaptation of what they sold to me. But I bought it on purpose. In fact, I use Rose all the time. And by the way, I don't own stock or any share in the corporation. There's no commissions received, no relationship they're completely independent of our church and denomination. But all that aside, I highly, highly recommend them. This is what it looks like in paper copies, by the way. If you ever get, well, they're not paper. They're like laminate. But what they are is they produce a lot of stuff. They started out with just little charts. But now there are all this electronic, digital media, etc. So PowerPoint, video, whatever you want. Um, but what they do is they take huge amounts of data and then compress it into little charts and summarize it. So, for example, what are God's promises to me? You could grab the Bible and start reading and just highlight and make a chart, and that'd be great, but that's going to take you a long time. There's somebody else who's already done the work, and they work at Rose, so they have something like that. The 12 disciples, you know, what, can anybody in here name all 12 disciples? Just curious. Probably not. Sometimes we forget. We get Peter, James, John, Bartholomew-ish. You know, who were these guys and what are they all about? Some of them, the scripture says very little. Rose charts lines up all that information for you. 
Mormonism. I got somebody knocking at my door. I'm not exactly sure what they're talking about. They will outline the basic beliefs of Mormonism, contrast those with Christianity. Jehovah's Witness, same thing. Islam and Christianity. Um, a denomination comparison chart. What's the big deal? Why is that church over there and we're over here? Is there any difference? Is just a color of the carpet? Or are there significant differences that make a meaningful reason for us to worship in different places? They will compare that. Um, 24 ways to explain the gospel. You've probably heard of like Campus Crusade, Billy Graham, the Navigators, the Romans Road. Whatever you use, they summarize it, put it in a chart. Baptism. Why do some people sprinkle? Why do other people dunk? What's the big deal? I got something on that. And last but not least, these are just examples. I mean, there's charts galore at this place. Four views of the end times. Tonight at our business meeting, we have a motion on the table to change premillennial to glorious. What's the big deal? Well, there's historic premillennialism, there's amillennialism, there's postmillennialism, there's dispensational premillennialism. I'm not going to go read a 600-page book on each of those, but I'd like to know what they are and why they're different and what it is I'm voting on. You can go to Rose, or you can take the stuff that we gave you too. But it's just an example of a great way to be informed and uh, summarize things and save you time. So that's what I was doing for the Sunday sermon. I'm trying to summarize thousands of years of data in the book of Genesis to get us moving through the big story. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that? I'll see if they got anything. And sure enough, they did. So what I want to do is give you a visual tour of the first several chapters of Genesis. And so... I normally say, if you're familiar with our church, turn in your Bibles. But this time I'm saying, don't open your Bibles. <laughs> and it's not because I'm trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Normally we want to stick our face in the text and make sure the preacher's not a liar. That's a good thing. But this morning what we'll do is we'll look at it because I think this visual presentation is beautiful and it gets us caught up really, really fast. So thank you, Rose Publishing, for your help on that. Here we begin. In the beginning, God created... The heavens and the earth. Day one, God created the light, which he called day. And the darkness, which he called night. Day two, he created the sky, which he called heaven. Day three, he created the land and the sea. Day four, God created the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five, God created the fish and creatures of the sea. The birds of the air. Day six, God created the animals and the final pinnacle of his creation Humanity, male and female, both created in the image of God. And on day seven, he rested. And I don't really know what picture to represent of God resting. He didn't sleep like we do. The scripture is clear about that. And he wasn't tired or fatigued or worn out. But instead, he celebrates the good work that he did and reframes from doing any more work. And that is essentially what rest is. And so God rested on day seven. 
Well, not long after that, as you know, everything's good. Everything's perfect. God's declared it good a lot. Well, even though we were perfect, we chose not to be. And that big incident is called the fall. What theologians call, you know, we were in this state of human perfection and we fell. We broke the one rule God gave us not to break. And as a result, Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And this is the big moment. This is when the snake seems to have won. And this is what we talked about last week in Genesis chapter 3. It appeared that Adam and Eve had lost forever. And yet God broke in. God in his sovereignty. God interrupted their downfall. And this is what God said to the serpent. But is also a communication to you and to me early on in this story that things will be resolved or fixed at one point. This is the video you just watched. God is speaking to the serpent. And to the serpent who is Satan, God says, He, and that's a capital He, that's pointing to Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Jesus will destroy you, Satan, with a mortal blow. Although you will strike him and bring him down, he will kill you and crush you and destroy you forever. And this is where we went last last Sunday. So if you're here, the sermon recap is the serpent is crafty, but Jesus is more wise. The serpent has captured us, but Jesus will free us. We lost our fellowship, but our fellowship will be restored. And therefore, although the problem is big, God's promise is much bigger. The problem is big, but God's promise is much bigger. So that's sort of Genesis 3. It's saying the problem is big. It's huge. It's insurmountable from our perspective. But God's promise is much bigger. Someone was restating this to me just this morning. And they said... Boy, Pastor Jeremy, I ran into some stuff this week, and I just kept saying to myself over and over again, God's promise is bigger than my problems. God's promise is bigger than my problems. I thought to myself, you know, that's a good way to say it. That may be better than the slide I have up here. The problem is big, but God's promise is bigger. I think the way you said it is better. God's promise is bigger than our problems. Sure, we have a lot of problems, and we have to work hard to overcome them, and some of them we may not in this life, but... God's ultimate promise is bigger than any of them. All of this is finite. There are a limited number of terrible things that are going to happen to me. Amen? Amen. (laughs) They're only limited in number, and then it ends. The problem is big, but God's promise is bigger. And so, what we know from reading Genesis 3, what Adam and Eve did not pick up on, and what we actually give in to every time we fall for temptation, is that, God's promises always come true, but Satan's never do. Satan promises them, oh, don't worry, you won't die. You'll be like God, it'll be great. Well, they're not like God. They get much less like God. They die and it's not so great. Satan's promises are always lies. God's promises are always true. So what we see beginning there, developing in that, is really this problem promise thing. Problem promise, problem promise, problem promise. As we go through scripture, we see that theme keep going with different incidents. It's a narrative story. So there'll be a problem that happens, but then God will come and give an encouragement. So, for example, um, there's a problem of Cain and Abel. 
You know, the I thought, you know, if, if you're Eve, you're sitting there saying, um, I thought, Lord, you said I would have a seed and he'd be a deliverer. And now my son has killed my other son. That's not going to work too well. And yet God provides the promise, not through Cain and Abel, but through Seth, who the messianic or the Jesus line will be continued. Then there's a similar problem. I mean, there's murder and the whole world, world's gone bad and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so God's going to blot out the world. And Adam and Eve, who are gone by then, could rightly say, well, Lord, you said you were going to fix this, but blowing it away with a flood doesn't seem to fix anything. But there is one righteous person left, and that person is Noah. And so God promises to deliver him because Noah believes God and Noah walks with him. And so God shows Noah how to build this ark, this place, this vessel, this thing that will provide salvation for him. And he begins to picture how we go to Christ for refuge and be sheltered from the storm. And so here is Noah, the first picture of that. And when Noah gets out after that big problem, there is another promise. And the promise is shown in the sky through the rainbow, a picture of God's covenant that he will never flood the earth like that again. Then there's another problem. There's the Tower of Babel, and everyone gets confused by the languages because they try to become God again. Just that same old lie that the serpent told to Adam and Eve. Hey, you guys can reach deity. No, you can't. You're broken. You need help. And so what happens then is the people are scattered throughout the world. So the people are scattered. We're far away from Eden. How are we ever going to get back? Well, God once again breaks in in this amazing and beautiful interrupting way what god does is at the bottom of this arrow closest um to where it says sumer there's a little place called ur and that's where this guy by the name of abram lives and abram's just this regular old guy a pagan idolater and out of seemingly nowhere god comes to him and calls him and breaks into his life and the lord god calls him from Ur, where he's taken Miz back to the promised land. So first he goes to Haran, and then eventually he goes over to Ur. And what God says to him is this. Let me read it for you. We'll leave that slide up on the board as I read. I'm actually going to read from, uh, first of all, from Genesis 12. This is when God first breaks into Abram's life. And he says, Abram, go from the country. I'll scoot you back one for you. Go from the country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you listen to this part. This is where the gospel begins to be hinted at again in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is it through one person? The whole world will be blessed. Scripture answers, wait and see. We'll show you. In you, Abram, all the world will be blessed. And so Abram went. He obeyed. He believed God. Those are key pieces that will apply to our lives in just a second. What does faith look like? Abram shows us. God comes and tells him to do something. Abram believes and obeys. That's faith. He said, okay, Lord, you haven't told me where I'm going, what I'm doing when I'm getting there, who's going to be waiting for me, how I'm going to make a living, how this thing's going to work. God has left all those details to the side. He has not told Abram, hey man, 
Here's what you're going to do. I've got this mapped out. Here's $10,000, and that's going to get you from point A to point B. Along the way, you'll stop here and here and here. You'll spend the night here. I've got a nice place picked out for you in a good neighborhood with great schools and healthy medical care. You'll be close to your work and close to your church, and this job will take you for the next 10 or 15 years, and then after that, you'll be ready to retire and ride off into the sunset. No. Nowhere close. God tells him nothing. He just says, get up and go. How many are you in? I'm in for something like that, Lord. Here, my Lord, send me. Tell me nothing and ask me to go somewhere I've never been and leave all of my family for something I've never known. That's huge. That's absolutely huge. That's what we do with our missionaries here at Midland Free, and that's what we do with uh, a lot of other things in the life of faith. When God calls you to something, he doesn't necessarily spell everything out, but you have to believe in him. What is it going to be like to raise a child? You have no idea. Oh, this is going to be great. I see the little commercials with, you know, powdery bottoms and uh, not so much, right? This is hard stuff. Oh, retirement. This is going to be great. It's going to be like me on the golf course and yada, yada, yada. And then talk to somebody who's retired and see what they say. Not always like that. God will call us somewhere, but he doesn't always fill in all the details. So he calls Abram, and Abram is 75 years old. I'm just curious, just for kicks, anybody above 75 in here this morning? Go for it. Admit it. All right. God is not done with you, okay? God has just begun with Abram when he's 75, and in the Bible, often there's not age markers. Most of the time, it doesn't tell you, and so you're sort of guessing or figuring out from other information. But God wants to show his people the time it takes to develop this promise. It is not overnight. I want overnight. I want like, dear Lord, please bless me, and tomorrow morning, can I have this? Amen. Santa showed up. Everything's good. Thank you, Lord. But you know what? Prayer is not a remote control or a clicker that we can just be like, all right, God, here's how I want it. Arrange these things in my life. Channel 13, golf all day. Please, amen. That didn't work. Come on, God, what's wrong with this thing? It changed the batteries or something? Clicker's not working. God doesn't work like that. He controls us. We don't control him. We get to follow in faith, just like Abram. So here is Abram, and he is called, and he says, okay. He just gets up and goes. And that's why in the New Testament, it's like, here is Abram, the person of faith who shows us how it's done. God calls, he gets up, he goes. He doesn't have it all figured out, but he obeys. So Abram, when he's 75 years old, he leaves the he leaves his homeland. He's headed to the promised land. I'm going to put that slide back up there for a second. And he goes where the Lord has called him. And when he gets there, that's when this next vision, I got ahead of myself on the slide, a touch. That's when this next vision comes along. And in Genesis, so that was all the way up to Genesis 12. We just went Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. Now in Genesis 15, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram again in a vision. It says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram says, uh, Lord, what will you give me for I continue to be childless? You said all the world's going to be blessed through me and my descendants. That doesn't make a lot of sense if I don't have a lot of descendants. And he says, 
Uh, and the Lord says to him, uh, look, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number of stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And here it actually spells it out in verse 6 of Genesis 15. And this will come back later in this, in the, what's left of the sermon. It'll say, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That'll come back. And then we'll move into today's text because this is what I want to show you um, as we read. There are, that's the first thing. Abram believed the Lord. Then there are two more things after that. And these three points, I believe, are sort of what holds it all together. There's the promise that we get in Genesis th- chapter 3. And that promise continues through the Old Testament and to today. And so today I called today's promise the first family or today's sermon the first family the promise continues. This is how it continues or moves down the pipe or comes to us. So again, in Genesis chapter 18, the Lord appears to Abram another time, this time by a place called the Oaks of Mamre. And as Abram sat at the door of his tent, listen to this story. In the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick. Three sieves of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf. This is what you call fast food, by the way. Tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. See, fast food. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he'd prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now, here's the other one I want to point out right here. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Even if you're beyond menopause, even if your husband's older than 75 years old, even if the doctors have told you it's medically impossible, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Church, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Even if you think you're too old, even if it's medically impossible, even if so-and-so has said whatever, is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, see, it's been 75 years. That's a long time to you, but it's no big thing to God. There's an appointed time, and you're freaking out because it's not the next morning and clicker doesn't work. 
But at the appointed time, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did. Then a year later, in Genesis chapter 21, says, the Lord visited Sarah, listen, as he said. And here's the third point we're going to pull out today. The Lord did to Sarah as he promised. The Lord does as he promises. The Lord does as he promises. Satan's promises never come true. God's always do. Sarah conceived and bore to Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abram circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. So when was the promise given? How old was he? Seventy-five. And the promise came true when? hundred. And the difference is? Anybody want to wait 25 years for something? Some of you who are over 75 say no big thing. But for me, that seems like a long time from now. I mean, 25 years. Wow, that's a long time to wait. 25 years this guy had to wait for God to fulfill the promise of a son to him. Abraham was 100 years old. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. So you're like, oh, great. He's beginning the sermon now. (laughs) That's the bulk. That's the majority. But let me make three points off of that that I'm trying to get to. There are three things that really hold this all together. As you're looking at this macro, big picture of God and how he works both a long time ago and today. And the thing is this. There are really three things holding it together. And the first of which is this omnipotence, God's power. Here's a slide or a picture of this. God, the big question we tried to pounce on just a few minutes ago is, is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything too hard for God? We got to ask ourselves this question each and every day. Is there anything too hard for God? What am I complaining about? What am I worried about? Why am I so upset? Why is this so scary? Why am I staying up worrying about? What am I thinking about? Why is this bothering me? What am I afraid of? Is there anything too hard for God? Earlier we said no, but later on today, what will we say? We might forget that question, and we might forget it on purpose. We may leave it out. But the reality is that question trumps all of our questions. Amen? That question trumps all of our questions. See, i got a lot of questions. I'm not sure it's how it's going to work. I'm just like Abram. I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, that's a long way. I'm not sure how you're going to get me there. We got a lot of things between here and there, and there's no answers along the way. What is there anything too hard for God? Okay, then. You're right, Lord. I don't know where the mountain goats give birth. That's Job. That's what he asked Job. Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Love that line. (laughs) No idea. You got me, God. You were there. I wasn't. You made them. I didn't. 
Is there anything too hard for God? We have to ask this question each and every day of our lives. Each and every day, we said, each and every day, is there anything too hard for God? Well, I don't know. Can God make a rock big enough he can't move it? No, the point is, there's nothing too hard for God. It's a rhetorical question, but it's to get this family where they need to go. And where they need to go is not just a physical place. But where they need to go is inside of themselves. They need to make some spiritual movement as well. They need to change. And so the physical move that God is doing in their life is to bring about the spiritual move. Did you hear that, church? I hope so. Look, sometimes the physical moves, the things that God is pushing on in your life, is not just about getting you from point A to point B physically, but it's about getting you from point A to point B spiritually. This journey, this path you're along that God has not explained to you is there to help you move, but not just physically, but spiritually. It's there to change you. It's there to grow you. It's there to stretch you. It's there to build you. It's there to teach you faith. And so you're walking one step along at a time. You're thinking, man, this is boring. Here we go across the plains of Kansas, across the plains of Ur, across South Dakota. I don't know. This is bad. Lord, there's nothing too hard for you. Number one, there's nothing too hard for God. Omnipotence. God is all powerful. Number two, Faith. Now, just because, just because um, we say God's all-powerful doesn't give us a pass just to pull out and say, well, I don't want to do anything. God's all-powerful, so I'm just going to take a nap. Sometimes you should, but not all the time. And here's the thing with Abram. It shows us in Genesis chapter 16. I tried to pounce on this earlier. It says, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to righteousness. To him as righteousness. Here is the gospel once again. Church, if you have never heard the gospel before, hear it today. What does it mean to be transformed from death to life? It's about belief and faith. It's about, by grace, through faith, believing what God has said. God has said that Jesus is his son. And God has said that if you believe in him in his death, burial, and resurrection, that you will be forgiven for your sins. If you believe that Jesus is your Savior and he died for you in your place and you put your trust, your belief, your faith, your all in all, whatever you want to call it, you put that in him, then his promise comes true. Satan's lies never do, but his promise does. And so when you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven. And that's what Abram is doing here in the Old Testament. Let's put that verse up there just a little bit more. Abram believed in the Lord. Some people are so confused by the law in the Old Testament, and they're like, uh, they get saved, or they're forgiven by doing good things, and we don't have to do good things to be forgiven? How's that work? Look, same, same. In both Testaments, exact same. Before the law was Abram. And this is why in Galatians chapter 3, Paul explains it like, here's the beginning of the gospel, the good news. Abram believed the Lord and he counted on his righteousness. You have to believe in God's promises and then you follow through in faith. Abram believed, he moved. People who got the law, they're like, okay, this is weird. We don't understand how a lamb can, like, 
He shed its blood for the forgiveness of our sins. But we're going to believe God and trust in that. That belief, that faith is what saves them, not the killing of the lamb. So too, in the New Testament, then, there's this guy named John, and he comes to us and said, there's this lamb who shed his blood for your sins. If you believe in that, it'll forgive you. And we're like, this is weird. It's some dude hanging up on a cross. That does not make sense. But if you believe in the promises of God, it's not the cross that saves you. It's the faith in God's promise that the blood will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Here is the gospel, first and foremost, at the beginning of the Bible. Before any of the other stuff is played out, God tells us, this is how you are saved. So trying to work your way to heaven is a big mistake. Going through multiple steps, you know, you think you got to do this and do this and do this and do this. That will not save you. If there is any church that teaches you have to do something in order to go to heaven, that church is heretical. It is sinful. It is terrible. It's awful. It is not the truth. The Bible says faith alone in Jesus saves you from start to finish. Anybody who says anything other than that is lying to you. It is faith alone. They say, well, first you got to do this, and then you got to do this, and then you got to do this, and then you... that is not the Bible. The Bible says believe God, and it's counted as righteousness. So examine what you're told. Number one, omnipotence. Number two, faith. We're involved. We have to believe. And that belief is not a couch potato belief. That's an act of belief. Abram believed God. He followed him. Old Testament people believe God. They went through the sacrificial system. New Testament people believe God. They follow after Jesus and participate in the life of his church. That shows you belief. If you're not in the church and participating in the life of the church, tells me you may or may not believe. It's not because you're earning your salvation. It just tells me what you already believe. You believe, then you go. You follow. Abram, Old Testament, us. So number one, God's power. Number two, our faith. And number three, God's faithfulness. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1 says, The Lord did to Sarah as he promised. That is so beautiful. That is so, so beautiful. The Lord did as he promised. The Lord did as he promised. The Lord did as he promised. How wonderful is that? God's promises always come true. He follows through. So many other people in life don't. Don't show up for their appointment. Don't pay their bills. Don't this. Don't that. Oh yeah, that'll be great. Okay, never see you again. God always does exactly what he says. God's word is true. And it shows up here at 100 years old to very... um, I don't know what else to say. Old people (laughs) who can't have a baby. And God does it. But then he shows it all throughout scripture. He's going to be faithful no matter what. And so what you see is when you look at those big three. Let's put those up on the slide. Here's the big three. The promise continues through the first family. From the, the, the original promise through the first family. In this way. Through omnipotence. God's all powerfulness. Through our faith. And through his faithfulness. God's all powerfulness. Our faith. And his faithfulness. And what's cool about it. As you look at this slide. What you really see is. Our faith is sandwiched in between. It's held there by God's power. And his faithfulness. It's not us holding this together. 
It's not in any way whatsoever. God takes the initiative with Abraham. God takes the initiative with Adam and Eve. God takes the initiative with us. And God secures Adam and Eve. He provides the covering for them. God secures Abraham. He provides the promise, the covenant, the blessing to him. And God secures us, providing us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. All the way through, it's God holding this thing together, not us. So again, anybody who tells you, well, it's all on you and you can this and you can that, they're so wrong. It's all on God. It is God's power and God's faithfulness over and above even our faith. It's God that gives us faith and it's God that secures our faith and it's God that perfects our faith and it's God that finishes our faith. So all the way through from start to finish, it's God who's holding this thing together. And so the promise continues. There will be a deliverer. He will crush the serpent. From the very beginning of the Garden of Eden all the way down to today, God is faithful. Jesus wins. God is good. God is in control. And Jesus wins. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We thank you and praise you for your faithfulness. Lord, there is none like you, and we're thankful. Lord, as we get ready to conclude our worship service, we just pray that you will help us to trust in your promises, believe in your faithfulness, and follow you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jeremy. Would you please?